Welcome to Let's Talk Social Work, the podcast from the British Association of Social Workers. This is space for conversation, discussion with social workers, the individuals they support, and colleagues working in related professions. We consider the key matters affecting social workers as we explore contemporary issues with a focus at the local, national, and global levels. Hi, how are you doing? Welcome to Let's Talk Social Work. My name is Andy McClanahan, and in this episode, which we're making to mark World Mental Health Day, my guests and I are going to explore the delivery structures for mental health social work services in England. We'll examine the pros and cons of integration of mental health social work services into the NHS and discuss why some local authorities are moving away from the integrated model, taking back operational responsibility for their social workers. This will all be considered in the context of the impacts at an organisational level, individual practice level, and in terms of the quality of the service provided. With me for today's conversation are Jason Brandon, Mental Health Social Work Lead at the Office of the Chief Social Worker, and Sarah Morris, Principal Social Worker for Adults at North Northamptonshire Council. Jason and Sarah, welcome. Welcome to Let's Talk Social Work. How are you guys doing? Very well, thanks. Thank you. Good, Sarah. Good, good to be here. Thanks, Andy. Thanks a million, Jason. Thanks for being with us. Um, we're we're meeting. Well, I was going to say we normally do these episodes over Zoom. We've had a bit of a technical snarl up, uh, and we're on Microsoft Teams, which I've said in previous episodes, looking at technology and social work that I'm not a big fan of Microsoft Teams. But we're all here. We're face to face, but we're not all in the same room. Jason, where are you? Southampton. Okay, England. Wonderful. Yes, uh, and Sarah, where are you? I'm in Leicester City. Okay, also in England, and I, as always, am in Belfast in Northern Ireland. So, before we begin, I want to make sure all our listeners are fully aware of the role of mental health social workers and also approved mental health professionals. Not everyone who's listening will be as steeped in this area of work as Jason and Sarah are. Jason, could you start us off with a quick overview of these roles, what the professionals in them do and who they support? Thanks, Andy. Um, So mental health social workers uh, have got their roots um, in 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 social policy over over many decades. Um, And and as you said, uh, they reach across to greater definition with um, the the approved mental health professional role um, and its predecessor, the approved social worker role. But um, on a day-to-day basis, social workers um, in working across health, health and social care, uh, working typically supporting people with mental health issues, um, will uh, have a variety of different roles and responsibilities towards people presenting with those issues, um, both from a statutory legal perspective in terms of the duties they have to carry out and professionally in terms of their approach with regard to supporting people to, with, with um, their different life circumstances and, and look no further than the, the environment that people are living in today with all of the different stresses and strains and cost of living pressures, etc., uh, is very, very fertile ground for mental health social workers to be supporting people with disadvantage, um, social injustice, uh, and looking to be able to support and engage people with direct social work interventions to try and alleviate some of the disadvantage and some of the challenges that people are experiencing with their emotional well-being and, and, and their mental health. 
And the role then of approved mental health professionals, Jason, I understand about 95% of approved mental health professionals, the term which might get used as AMPS as the, as the shortened term, 95% of those individuals are social workers, but it's not an exclusively social work role. Isn't that correct? Um, it's not an exclusively social work role, uh, theoretically. Um, and, and in law, in 2007, the, the law was amended, the Mental Health Act was amended to, to broaden the eligibility for non-social workers to take up the role. As I mentioned before, it used to be um, the approved social worker that would carry out uh, uh, the the function, the statutory safeguard in in law where um, people were subject to Mental Health Act assessments. But now it's open to nurses, psychologists and occupational therapists. But since the, the the 2007 amended act, as you say, um, we've probably only really seen a, a, an incremental change in the profile of the workforce where, as you say, typically that's a social worker um, uh, who, who's undertaking the AMP role as it stands at the moment. There's about 3,800 AMPs in England, is that right? Yeah, yeah, um, absolutely. There's, there's now an, an annual AMP workforce survey. And so over the last three years, it's demonstrated that, um, that the number of, of AMPs remains are, uh, around about 3,800, as you yeah. say. And whether or not that's proportionate demand is the, is the kind of professional debate that, that, yes. that's being had at the moment. Yes. I mean, of, of, of a workforce is about, social work workforce is around 100,000, isn't it, in England? It's a significant, um, small but significant proportion of the workforce. Yeah, I mean, could I come in there? I mean, within Northamptonshire, both North and West Northamptonshire, we do have a number of AMPs who are healthcare colleagues. So uh, NHFT, the, the, the healthcare trust here, does support their workers to train and practice as AMPs, which is great and does have a positive impact, obviously, on the numbers. Um, I do think we have talked about the importance of ensuring that we still, we're still promoting the AMP role through social care, because I think it's, we would want um, you know, that rotor to be staffed primarily by social workers, or certainly there to be a, a, a significant number of social workers. We don't want to be relying too heavily on healthcare colleagues, but it's great to be have that support into that role. And, and I think that range of, of workers with backgrounds does mean that um, they take that knowledge back into their own day-to-day work, don't they, That the, the knowledge as AMPs, and can support people in their day-to-day work as well. And just because this will matter as we move into the conversation further, because we're talking about integration with NHS services, approved mental health professionals, my understanding is that regardless of where they work, they must be warranted by a local authority. Have I picked that up right? Sarah, you're nodding, yeah? That's correct. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, so we warrant all of of the AMPs. Okay, thanks. Now, tell us a bit about your background. Um, Well, I qualified as a social worker back in 1997. Um, and worked initially in our older person's mental health services in Leicester City. Um, And I was an ASW there, an approved social worker, um, before becoming a manager. Um, I spent 10 years as Leicester City's head of service for adult mental health Uh, and was responsible for the work to return social workers to the local authority 
Return them from where, Sarah? Uh, they've been seconded under a Section 75 agreement to Leicestershire Partnership Trust. Okay. I don't want to get down into too much detail, but Section 75 of what? I believe it's the NHS Act 2007, Section 75 of that Act. Thank you. Thank you. And I won't get any more nerdy detail <laughs> than that. Sorry, Sarah, I cut you off. So you were returning social workers to um, the council from from uh, NHS, yes? Yes, that's correct. Yeah. Okay. And and then managed them for um, the next 10 years before I took up the post as principal social worker in North Northamptonshire in August of 2021, which was shortly after um, North Northamptonshire and West Northamptonshire had become unitary authorities. Uh, and I am responsible for managing the AMP service alongside the PSW role. Okay, so have you worked then, if I get this right, you have worked in a situation where there actually has been a shall we say, a divorce between an integrated <laughs> service. Um, and have you worked so? Have you worked in solely LA, where, where mental health services have been delivered solely by the local authority and you've also worked in situations where there have been a transfer? Um, yeah, I mean, I didn't work in the teams at that point. Okay. Uh, I, I think I left, in fact, I was working in older person's mental health services, but I think as I became a manager within um, Leicester's access service, so front door services, I think that was the point at which my adult mental health service colleagues moved to Leicestershire Partnership Trust. Okay, thanks, Sarah. And Jason, tell us a bit about your background and, and your working in, how, you know, your experience of integrated social work and mental health services. Sure, sure, sure. So I, I qualified in 19, in the late 90s, uh, 96. And, um, and then I worked... Um, I, I worked with with people with um, learning disabilities and uh, with mental health uh, teens until then. I, I qualified as, as an ASW in two thousand two thousand one. Um, we worked separate, so we worked separately um, in, in Hampshire um, as a system between health and social care till about two thousand. So I I was introduced then to. This, the arrangement that Sarah referred to within an integrated partnership um, as it was developed. And uh, so I was kind of introduced to it in 2000. And I remember going into the health office, which we were, were moving into as a social work team. We were a really tight social, mental health social work team um, and, and we're really experienced. And some of the people that I, I worked with then I keep in touch with and, and have gone on to, to a variety of different greater things. Um, and then, and, and we, we moved in, and I remember the day we moved in and there was hardly anybody in, in the health office and it felt really frosty. And, um, and, and it was definitely, you know, you use that kind of, was it a divorce? But there are so many marriage metaphors, you, you, you know, that we'll, we'll probably be referring to. But, um, but then actually we, we grew as a health and social care arrangement. You know, if you think about um forming storming norming performing all of the psychology psychology of kind of joining and coming together it was i, I lived through that uh, i like like sarah I, I kind of gathered experience took on management management roles took on asw lead roles then i became head of service in in roughly about um 2010 and um we worked with the local provider trust and uh, as as a symbol of the efficacy and the value 
uh, and um, and of the structure with regard to the integrated partnership, I took on the role as the deputy clinical director alongside my social work lead role, which was really, um, as I say, really symbolic. Um, to the point then, however, <laughs> where in 2015, not dissimilar to Sarah, I was very much involved in the engineering of the the divorce to perpetuate the 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 metaphor and uh we stood up mental health social care teams outside of then the end of of the the partnership arrangement which the local authority terminated um and it 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 was a very very bumpy and difficult time uh, to lead on but as i say i led that um and uh as the head of service for mental health physical disabilities um prison social care and 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 prevent in hampshire county council i'm now seconded into this role um in the chief social workers office trying to support and and uh professional leadership across mental health and and the amp world thank you jason so a huge amount of experience now you said that Back in 2000 was when you uh, moved into a team that was pursuing the integrated model. So that's two decades. Um, What I'm kind of keen to know, and forgive me if this isn't an easy question to answer, is there a clear picture of the situation across the country now? Two decades in, two decades into integration, we are seeing divorces in terms of how services are being delivered with local authorities taking back operational control. Is it possible to paint one picture of the situation across the country, or is is that impossible to do? Uh, I think the picture the picture you would paint would be very mixed. That, that there there is there is no um, one size fits all. Um, uh, I, I think certainly the publication of of the white paper. Um, in February that the government this is health and social care integration joining up care for people places and populations. Yeah. That's the one. So, so, so there is very much a, a, a an appetite from the centre to be able to support integration. But if you look around about all of the different systems, but certainly from a local authority perspective, you will see a whole variety of different approaches for a for a number of different reasons. But typically and anecdotally, there seems to have been a bit of a flurry over the last five five years or so of of local authorities stepping outside of those partnerships. Okay, and I really want to get into that. But just before we do, um, because you mentioned the white paper, I'm just going to read a quote from it. As people who use health and care services require ever more joined up care to meet their needs, achieving this will make all the difference, and this is what I find interesting, both to the quality of care and to the sense of satisfaction for staff. So that's something I'm kind of keen to talk about later. But if we, if if you are saying there's a flurry of of move away from integration, does anyone want to volunteer a suggestion as to why that's happening? I, I can certainly talk from perspective in Leicester um, that I think we found that workers were not able to prioritise adult social care's priorities. So we had real concerns that safeguarding was not receiving the um, the the concentration that it required and that actually maybe um some of the some of the some of the the time given to things like um social care assessments and understanding eligibility and and those kinds of things were not being done um paperwork 
wasn't always being completed as we would want it to be. So I think there was a concern about some of the statutory functions not being undertaken as fully as we would wanted um, and the risk that that left the local authority at. And what was being done if those statutory functions weren't being met? What were the the staff actually doing then in, in those teams? That I think when agencies are under pressure, it is not surprising that what they concentrate on is their own priorities. So I think there was a feeling that there is excellent work being done, isn't there, where, as you said, people can work together, you have a part, that true partnership, integrated working, and actually um, uh, no demarcation between different professional roles. But the risk is that therefore social workers are being dragged into healthcare functions at to the detriment of their social care work. And I think that's what we were seeing was that social workers were um, concentrating on the healthcare functions rather than... So is that is it too crude to say that's reinforcing the medical model of care over the social model? Um, no, I don't think it is. Because I think if if as a consequence the social care function is being... Um, reduced, then no, it's not, is it? I think that's potentially, a, yeah. I think that's a symptom. I think that's, I, I, I think it's, it's, it's much in the way in which Sarah described in terms of social care almost being relegated by the lead agency responsible for delivering the service in in a decade where we saw austerity and we have seen that that the challenge with with the, the cuts over, over the last years. And we've seen the introduction of, of new social care legislation in the form of the Care Act, um, again, which, which Sarah alluded to. Um, and, and, I mean, just structurally, looking at two different organisations in situ delivering a service to its local population, one being contractually obliged to the command and control of one NHS body and directive, and the other being the, the, the local authority obviously being responsible to its electorate and to its politicians. And, and in so doing, you've got the workforce trying to abide and meet the obligations of the organisation that's clearly prioritising two different sets of pressures and something then comes off maybe not as well as, as, it, as it should do. I don't think people would dis... And this isn't the question you're asking, but I, 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 don't, I don't think people um, uh, uh, disagree with integration. I, I think generally people will agree with the principles of working together and, and, and we'll probably go on to talk about that. In effect, the operation... It, it needs to be enabled locally um, more, more effectively with regard to some of those different demands that you have structurally. What I want to ask now is uh, what integration actually looks like. You know, so when teams are working in an integrated model, does it mean co-location? Does it mean social workers in the same office as their nursing colleagues, as their occupational therapy colleagues? Or is it about using the same systems and liaising closely between social workers and their medical colleagues? What does it look like at the coalface? I think it depends where you are, doesn't it? And I think I was really interested in Jason's um, description of... Um, the start of integration and moving into offices because in fact in my time as a social worker whilst we weren't integrated we were co-located 
so I think when Leicester moved to an integrated model, they didn't have that moment where they had to go to the new offices because they were sat next to their healthcare colleagues anyway. Um, so I don't think where you are has to be the case. Um, I think it is about systems. So I know that, for example, when I worked, um, when we were co-located, you are using different systems. So you don't have access to the same information, do you? Because there are still the same data protection rules about the sharing of information. Um, and I think it's also about how you are working together and um, who you are accountable to. There is that, isn't there? That, 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 that thing about management and who you report to and are accountable to. I know when I worked in a co-located model, we very much saw ourselves as a team, but actually my line manager was an adult social care line manager. Um, it, it wasn't the same person who managed my nursing colleagues. So there would be scenarios where we would have very different perspectives and you didn't have that management oversight that brought that together. So, so just I get this right. Your manager, even within the team, your line manager was different from your nursing colleagues. So, how how does that doesn't sound very integrated? That sounds like almost like two different professions working side by side, as opposed to working, yes. you know, as one Sorry. system. Sorry, no, no, exactly. That's what I'm saying. This was prior to integration in Leicester. Forgive me. People Sorry. Co-located. No, no, not at all. So, I'm saying that what happened was they moved from that where they were co-located, but actually had these separate line management structures to then being um, integrated, whereby they had one line management structure um, and in some cases, I believe, used one one IT system, although not all the teams did that. And who was the line manager then when the integration happened? Was it a social worker, managing social workers? Um, I believe it was a mixture. So some of the teams were managed by social care managers and some by health managers. And I'm going to get into that. I want, I, again, I want to explore that. But Jason, I'd welcome your views on, on experience of what um, integration looks like practically. What good integration looks like practically. Um, I like that. What good integration looks like. That's good. Yes. Tell us best case scenario. What does it look like? It's the holy grail. It's the, it's the question that, 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 that leads to the Holy Grail and, and good uh, and integration will mean different things to different people. Uh, uh, um, and, and over the years that, that Sarah and I have worked with integration, it's something that we wrestle with. Um, and because there is no, there is no instruction manual ab about integration or good integration per se, my experience of integration and working in the role that I did just, just, just as uh, uh, so to give you some insight, was that I probably I probably found the majority of my days, and I used the metaphor of kind of working in the trench between health and social care, trying to make sure that I was kind of joining the dots and stitching the opportunities together, and navigating relationships and working between systems, etc., to to ensure that the machine and that, you know, continued to strive on a, you know, from, from one day to the next. Um, 
that there's been there's been quite a lot of writing um and and research about good integration um i'm i'm really minded about um some of the work that sky's done um and they did some work with the department of health and social care um and they looked to develop an integration standard Oh, and within the standard, and I'm just going to read out what the seven domains were because they, they they really resonated with me. One is around interoperability between the local authorities and the NHS between with regard to systems. You wouldn't believe, or you would believe possibly, the way in which the systems don't talk to each other as effectively as they should do. Um, sharing and targeting resources on effective prevention, value for money. Does does good integration mean that actually it's there's more effective use of the public purse? Having a single assessment process, thinking about the care program approach and then care act assessments, the two don't necessarily talk to each other. Um, integrated community care, so much of which Sarah and I have already referred to into the kind of the day to day practicalities around how do you deliver a multidisciplinary offer to somebody and avoid them having to knock on a variety of different doors in conjunction with the third sector. Um, Timely and safe discharges. And we see that at the moment, don't we, with the pressure on hospital beds and how effectively to work to work and where's the parity of esteem between physical and, and mental health care. And the last one is around crisis care and making sure that social care is embedded in that urgent crisis care pathway and and those those seven different domains of that 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 standard really resonated in terms of actually beginning to articulate what my day-to-day and practical experience was of really trying to work to what good looks like but it varies from one place to another in terms of how much emphasis you place on those Jason, if you send me that document, I'll put a link in the show notes so so listeners can find it. Yeah, There's one brilliant. point, though, and I'm, I'm going to lead on to something here. I think it was the second point. Was it targeting money in terms of intervention? Is that what? Is that what? Yeah, prioritize, prioritizing resources towards prevention. Okay, to prevention. Okay, so with that in mind, I want to move on. The Basel England Mental Health Thematic Group, they recently undertook FOI, Freedom of Information Requests of NHS Mental Health Trusts. And findings indicated that very few organisations had a principal social worker equivalent role or social work representation at board level. So when you're taking one example of targeting resources in terms of prevention, if you don't have a principal social worker at that board level influencing decisions, surely that will then have impacts in terms of how resources are targeted in just using that one example of prevention. So do you foresee problems there in terms of uh not having the the necessary social work representation at the strategic level. Yes, I, I think I think you can see that as being a big risk. I mean, I would have to say, um, in Leicester and Leicestershire, whilst they are no longer integrated, I know that social care is very involved in their um, their senior planning meetings. So conversations about funding and where that funding should be targeted do include social care reps. Certainly I was um, on a number of those groups and heavily involved in conversations about where we should spend particular government funding that came out. But that's because the Leicestershire Partnership Trust had chosen to um, ensure that social care was heavily involved. You know, that wouldn't have to be the case, would it, in other areas of the country 
You, you've been quite specific in your question now about principal social work representation. And, and I think that there's, there's something, again, I suppose, open to interpretation about that because different local authorities will engage their principal social work mm. role in, in, in a variety of different ways. It's, it's not always such that somebody will be fully employed as a full-time principal social worker per se. But, but getting behind the spirit of your question, I think it's absolutely essential that social work leadership is engaged and involved in strategic board level discussions. And particularly um, where, and we haven't mentioned it already, and, and perhaps it, but, but it's, it's kind of the elephant in the room of, of a lot of conversations, the experience that we've had and learned from the pandemic. Um, it, it, you know, we, we've, we've developed and continue with a strategic agenda. Um, uh, but, but that's being compounded and, I suppose, accelerated as a result of all of the issues that we saw accentuated through um, the, the, the pandemic and the challenges that health and social care had to work with together um, at such a, a, a pace with their local communities and the voluntary sector, etc. So now we're coming out of that. There has been some real benefits in terms of building relationships, etc., and strengthening arrangements and looking at a more effective multi-agency business continuity, etc. But and also in terms of the currency of mental health, actually, hasn't everybody become an expert on mental health now? You know, everybody talks about their emotional well-being, the engagement of public health in that world. Actually, strategically, social work leadership now has got a lot more opportunity to build alliances. And I think the system would be a lot poorer without social work leadership at, at board level, as you say, whether it's that ICB level or, or other types of kind of place level board arrangements. Absolutely. I want to, if we kind of continue with benefits though, I mean, speaking to social workers prior to making this episode, I'm aware that there are varied, varied views on whether social workers prefer working in integrated services or working directly within a local authority team. Would it be possible to go through some of the benefits and challenges of the different models? So if we're looking at service delivery, impact for social workers and also people who use the services, pros and cons, is that something you could lay out a few? I, I can start. I can start if you like. Pros and cons. Um, yeah, it's an equal balance. I'll start with a real bugbear. I remember working in local in, in an integrated arrangement, and I had about three different email addresses. Okay, I'd have an NHS uh, a, a provider trust email, a local authority email, and a and another type of uh, NHS email. Um, so that the the kind of working in duplicate, triplicate. Um, across the two different organisations to your employer, who will be your local authority potentially, and your operational lead. Too, too, many, too many masters, too many uh, uh, mistresses to be able to, to have to, to meet. Um, maybe continue with the cons because it'll be nicer to finish with some of the benefits, okay. wouldn't it? Um, so, so a lot of bureaucracy, um, a lot of juggling, as we've kind of already talked about, in terms of making sure that you're prioritising and understanding Care Act responsibilities and being able to kind of prioritise your understanding of those Care Act responsibilities within that multidisciplinary arrangement. You talked about the kind of the encroachment, if you like, or, or, or the dilution of the social care model in a medical environment. So actually, social care, social work is, is often, I would say, should I use the word subservient? But I don't know a junior partner. It feels sometimes it's a, it's the minority partner is probably 
um, something to, to... What does that mean, uh, Jason, for social workers' professional identity and sense of, you know, value as a profession? Two things. One, one feeling undervalued. Yes. And another, if, if led well, galvanised to actually be united in terms of being able to stand up and, and really stand up for, for the distinction of what they're able to offer. Can I just offer a wee insight here? Um, so sure. I work uh, for Basel Northern Ireland four days a week, make the podcast for Basel UK one day a week. In 2019, Basel Northern Ireland, in conjunction with the Irish Association of Social Workers, we did an all-Ireland social work survey of professional identity. And we did that with the two regulators, North and South as well. And one of the questions we asked was to social workers was, do you identify more closely with non-social workers who work in your area of practice or social workers who work outside your area of practice? Now, when you break this down for Northern Ireland and the Republic, nearly 56% of social workers in Northern Ireland said they identify more closely with non-social workers who work in their area of practice. So much more identification with non-social workers in their area of practice than with social workers outside their area of practice. It was slightly less in the South. It was a 50-50 split. Now, Northern Ireland has a completely integrated health and social care system. Um, and, you know, I, I can't say for certain drawing on that, but it would suggest that working in that integrated model may lead to a lower sense of identification with other social workers outside of areas of practice um, because you're spending so much time working with other professionals. And something that we're trying to do as a professional association is then bolster that sense of professional identity. What does that mean? What does it mean to be a strong, proud, um, creative, you know, uh, emboldened profession? Uh, but I just thought I would drop that in because it was one example where we can look quite specifically at a fully integrated service in Northern Ireland and a, a less integrated service in the South and how there is not a massive difference, but some difference there. I, I'll, I'll respond to that quickly, and then yeah. and then I'll I'll, I'll step back and, and allow and, and allow Sarah to come in. But um, I, I could absolutely relate to that. I, I do I do think there's something about professional leadership with with regard to to that happening because there's a couple of things that I w I used to kind of refer to is actually a multidisciplinary team is about the sum of its parts and the, and, and the value of the, the different multidisciplinary contributions. And we used to use the metaphor about it being a fruit salad as opposed to a smoothie. Um, you know, if you're all blended, then as you say, the inference is that, that professional identity is, is, is diluted. Um, the other thing that I think I would mention that really kind of speaks to that in my experience, that and, and one of the, the maybe the final straws that, that, that broke the camel's back was when a social worker came to me to get permission as the head of the mental health service in that integrated partnership to see whether or not he could train to be a phlebotomist. So a phlebotomist being a clinician trained to, to be able to take blood okay. with a view to monitoring lithium clinics. Okay. And I kind of... It kind of there was a you know an appreciation there that actually this isn't going according to plan. Yes, I mean talk <laughs> about that, social workers have, have lost their identity. Can we say very here. much medical model in that context? Absolutely, um, Jason, yes. absolutely. Uh, thank you. Sorry, forgive me. I, I didn't know what a phlebotomist was. Thanks for educating. Yes. Yeah. Nor did I until okay. <laughs> the put in the bit. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, so con. Well, I want to give Sarah her opportunity to talk cons because Jason's talked cons. Um, but also reflect on benefits if, if if there are benefits to reflect on. Sarah, do you want to have a think? I think that I think it's tricky because I think, as Jason said, I think I think there are two sides. So I think you 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 can see pros and cons in things. I think 
from my experience, I do think databases is a big issue. And I think that is an issue whether you are using the same database as your healthcare colleagues or you are using the same database as your social care colleagues. That sharing of information across health and social care, the whole of health and social care, is a challenge. So we had a scenario where um, teams were fully integrated. So the social, the mental health social worker had inputted information onto the health database, but not the adult social care one, which meant when this person re, re, um, represented to the access service, they didn't know risk information because it wasn't on the social care database because it had been placed on the health one. So whether you fully integrate that way or you, do, or you don't, I think there are challenges there. And I think the other challenge, I suppose, is I think with integration, uh, particularly where somebody may be being managed by a healthcare manager, I think there is a risk that you you move away from the positive uh, professional challenge that can come between health and social care workers and and the health the, the health the medical and social care model, um, and I think. Certainly, I have worked with people who have very clearly um, identified that since since the divorce, actually, they felt much more empowered to challenge, um, particularly where they felt healthcare colleagues were being risk averse and that they could advocate for the people they were working with to be able to take positive risk. So I, I do think that there is a a, a, a con there. I, I don't want to sound negative because I recognise that there are, you could have a um, an excellent scenario where you are fully integrated, but there actually is that professional challenge between colleagues. But I think Jason's right. In order to do that, you need that professional leadership there and I do think there is something about um, preparing for integration <clears throat> and actually health and social care leadership, um, having those conversations up front and being and, and planning how they are going to provide that professional leadership to their teams uh, once they are integrated and, and maybe I don't know, I may be, may be being unfair, but maybe that's what didn't happen in the past. I, I, I'm sorry, I, I want to make sure I, I kind of um, emphasise that, that that we've lost a lot <laughs> by stepping out of the, the partnership arrangements. Whilst whilst we've you, you've heard the motivations and the drivers for why we have stepped out of those arrangements, namely in terms of some of the priorities that the local authority has had to protect and, and, and develop. By doing that, the experience is a far poorer one, I think, um, from a local authority perspective, because I think social workers working in a co-located or in a partnership way with our health colleagues was incredibly beneficial on a day-to-day -day basis to be able to have the corridor conversations, to be able to kind of sit in, 
in um, allocation and screening meetings with a variety of different professions, whether it was the consultant psychiatrists, psychologists, nurses, OTs. You could share and discuss, break down barriers, work out solutions, work with to support people in a really, really personalised way. You could challenge some of those medical perspectives. Medical perspectives can challenge some of the... So medical isn't bad. Medical is absolutely necessary. And, I, I, and, I hope and, I haven't suggested it is, Jason. No, 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 I'm not saying... No, 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 no. I, I, but, but I think we pathologise that in the social care profession sometimes. And, and, and I, I, there was many a time when actually... I found myself talking about side effects in a way in which I kind of had to really check myself and remind myself that I was a social worker. But it enhanced it enhanced my offer and my interventions when I knew how to support somebody alongside my crisis management or alongside my uh, different types of interventions that I would have provided for somebody when I knew actually how their medication was affecting them and, and, and at the same time. So you know, and so on and so forth. I, you know, there, there are there are a whole range of advantages and positives. And from and and there's another conversation about the experience of receiving services, not not knocking on a million doors to be able to go and get a service. I was very keen to ask about that. What yeah. does that mean for the services user to have maybe not a single point of contact, but fewer people to have to be engaging with? If sep- services are separated, and you have then. You know, if somebody has a mental health need, I'm guessing having them kind of feel like they're being pushed from pillar to post is not necessarily going to be beneficial. Uh, but I think I think Jason's right, isn't he? When it works well, if you've got true integration, then <clears throat> you have got this single point of access and <clears throat> you've got this mental health worker who is working with you. And OK, if they need to go and seek very specialist advice from a healthcare colleague or a social care colleague, depending on who they are, then they can do that. But actually, they're the person who's working with you and they will have those informal conversations and link that all together. That is so much a better, much, much better service than actually what happens. And I do think that post, um, po- um, post-divorce actually we split further than we had been prior to integrating that actually it's really a really acrimonious divorce yeah well no bizarrely it wasn't but i do think that the fact that people had been integrated it then meant it it kind of split apart Mm -hmm. bit by bit really unfortunately and i think that then uh, each agency puts up its very strict rules about referral criteria um, when actually maybe what had happened previously were, were just chats in the corridor and, oh, you wouldn't just, how about, would you just pop out with me to, you know, these kinds of things. Um, so I do think the service for the people we serve, where you have really good integration, is by far better, you know, more seamless. And And Jason's right, you know, I was very lucky in starting my social work career in, okay, it wasn't an integrated team, but it was a co-located team. You know, the, the knowledge I gained from those CPNs who worked in the same office as me was massive. And it must have meant that the service I provided to the people I worked with was a better one. Jason, you mentioned earlier on about research into what good integration looked like. What I wanted to ask was, do we have any stats to back up whether integration has shown to benefit service users? Do we know? No, no, I don't know that we do have any stats because I think it's, it's quite um, 
it's quite a difficult metric. It's going to be a qualitative study. Uh, and, and to my knowledge, um, there isn't a, a great amount of research that concludes one way or another whether or not it's beneficial or not. Um, because I think, again, it would vary from one place to another. So I don't know that there has been a systematic piece that's been done about it. Um, so I, I, I do think it's still open open to to testing. Um, but but generally, I, I think with regard to some of the structural opportunities, et cetera, and with regard to some of the um, opportunities in terms of health and social work, social care working together to improve outcomes for people, I think there is a sense that actually it's it, it's better to to integrate than not to integrate. Again, going back to the definition of whatever that means. But the government, I think, in their white paper has tried to put some meat on the bones or to give some sort of interpretation uh, in, centrally about what integration could mean as a consensus. Sarah, earlier in the conversation, we talked about issues that could arise if a social worker is being managed by a non-social worker within an, within an integrated team. So let's look back at that again. What does that mean for professional supervision? If a social worker isn't being managed by a social worker, professional supervision, but also what are the implications for practice and professional development? Well, I think if the social worker is not being line managed by a social worker, I, mean, I, think, I think that has to be available to them. Um, I think it is, it is vital that social workers are able to receive professional supervision. Um, clearly, particularly in my role now as a as a principal social worker, I would be arguing that very strongly. Um, and I think it, it is that opportunity, isn't it, for that professional reflection, um, for considering um, your work, um, reflecting on it, how that uh, links into the, the PCF, and considering, you know, your own registration and how you're going to be um, to meet, be meeting those requirements. Um, and I think it offers workers the opportunity to um, reflect on scenarios where maybe they need to challenge their colleagues. You know, I talked previously about um, having good positive challenge between different professions even if that's within an integrated team and I think you need that opportunity in supervision don't you to reflect on those things and consider that so to me it is vital that has to be available for for workers if even within integrated teams Jason? I just realized oh. I didn't, <laughs> didn't comment on clearly also in terms of your development and considering you know your own professional development and how you want to take that forward um ensuring that workers have the the um, opportunity to to tap into that and that managers are aware of what's available and, and and needed for people i'm just going to look in one very specific example if a mental health social worker who's working in an integrated team in a mental health trust wants to undertake their approved mental health professional training um, would they be as likely to be supported in that than if they were working in a in a local authority? Um, the local authority is responsible for approval of of the sufficient number of AMHPs, AMPs, um, in, in the system. Um, 
I think that AMP has to be one of the core offers for a mental health social worker's continuous professional development. It brings about that legal literacy. It brings about that opportunity to be able to offer their system leadership. It brings about that safeguard that really chimes into their values, regardless of where you're employed. But it doesn't happen everywhere, and it doesn't happen everywhere for a variety of reasons. And they, they're, they're more corporate, they're more structural reasons, they're more political with a small p reasons. Um, and, and ultimately, different local authorities in their partnerships with different NHS provider trusts appear to have different arrangements. But, but we have to champion in the fact that ultimately local authorities need to have their workforce plans to determine how many amps that they need. And, and how many amps that they need to have and continue to have in the pipeline. And if that means their succession plans can include and, and, uh, and open that offer to their NHS employed social work, nurse, OT, psychology colleagues, then the world will be, a, and, and, and the offer would be a much richer place. That's the direction that I, I'm advocating from a chief social worker's perspective um, in my role as the mental health social work lead. Don't you think, don't you think also there's, there is the issue about what about if their professional development is not specifically about mental health and the AMP? What about social workers going wanting to go on and train as practice educators, for example? That would be my greater concern <clears throat> that actually that availability of professional development in areas that aren't specifically mental health should still be available to all, all social work staff. Thank you, Sarah. I just want to wrap up with one last question. Do you feel from your experience, is the social work role adequately understood in integrated teams? Do your nursing colleagues, do your occupational therapist colleagues understand exactly what social workers are there to do? And if not, is there a, a, an element of education that's needed intra-profession? Inter, sorry, that would be inter-profession, would it? Which is, which is between and which is within, intra or inter? I can't remember. You'll get the message, you understand, yes. Sorry, it's so professional, so slick. I think I think my experience is is um, is that we we struggle as a profession. I think to be able to provide a clear narrative about what it is that social work, but particularly what mental health social workers do. That that experience, I suppose, was compounded when we stepped out of our arrangement in Hampshire, and. Uh, and A, we had to ask ourselves, okay, so what is it that we do um, as a local authority, so mental health social work offer? And, and B, all of our other multidisciplinary colleagues were saying, okay, so what is it that you do now then? <laughs> because I think typically in the system of, of mental health services over, over the, the recent years, our, our golden thread was the care program approach. And within the CPA, professionals would undertake the care coordination role. And generally, I think mental health professionals in integrated arrangements were identified as care coordinators, primarily social workers, nurses, OTs, second, in, in a secondary capacity. So stepping out then, we've been on quite a journey to be able to really understand that from a local authority social work perspective, what we do is governed by our statutory responsibilities like the Care Act and the Mental Health Act and the Mental Capacity Act. Um, and, and, and we need to find and finesse a narrative that, that's actually 
not overcomplicated. That is understandable. Um, that, that speaks to that. And certainly in view of where we, we really excelled through the pandemic about actually going out to reach out to people who are in really difficult situations. Um, similarly, what confuses the issue is that you'll have NHS employees, social workers who won't be as obliged to, to, to um, conform to Care Act responsibilities, uh, which are the responsibility of the local authority but we'll, we'll probably stretch on the continuum of mental health social work to be able to deliver some therapeutic type interventions um, alongside some of the, the, the assessment work that they do within the care planning arrangements that are, 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 are um, governed and adopted by, by that, their individual trust. Um, so, so we start from, from quite a confusing base. And I think as a, as a system, as a profession, we need to do better to be able to describe that what we do um, as distinct from what our other social work colleagues do in older adults and, and younger adults. So to answer, uh, to answer your question, no, I don't, think we do, I don't think professions understand it very easily. And I think we sometimes uh, need, well, we, we need to describe that more effectively. I would agree. I think um, I certainly know that when I was a social worker, and I think then as a manager as well, we were very much perceived as um, the people who had to agree to the money. So social workers were there to get sign off for packages of support. Um, and, And I think that's really really sad and really unfortunate and I think we've really tried to move away from that and I think Jason's right there is the the framework the the legal framework within which we work I think there is also we also would want to bring certain values and skills as social workers to those roles I think we do I think but I think there's a challenge in explaining that isn't there um because I think to suggest it is difficult when maybe you don't want to come across as suggesting that you're bringing something that others don't have. Yes. But I think social workers are, re- are rightly very proud of those um, those values and skills. Sarah, thank you. Jason, thank you. I'm going to have to call time. It's been a really great conversation and there are issues that I hope to cover that we haven't got to cover. But thanks for your time. It's been great, and you've been great guests. I'd love to have you back on again in the future. I, if you, you can say you want to come back on. Maybe, maybe this has been too much. I don't know. <laughs> it's been great. Thank you very much. <laughs> it's a really, it's it, it's always really interesting to be able to talk about a profession, um, the, the our profession, our profession. Um, I, I, I don't know. I, I'm not sure it, I've taken the opportunity enough to be able to to describe actually how much of a rewarding professional experience has been working in social work for the last however many odd years since since I qualified but um certainly working in the profession as a practitioner was was incredibly stimulating and then working it through to champion all of the issues to make sure that it continues to give the value that it does um, I think is a real privilege so so it's really interesting always happy to talk about it thanks Andy thanks Sarah